welcome everyone um, to a, a book launch. Where, can we see? Uh, take, can you be the uh, model, Jeff, of the book, or Isabel can be the model? <laughs> We're here to, so to um, <laughs> discuss. <laughs> Um, the History of China's Future, but we're also here to launch this book, which is just published this week. Um, and can we tell them what it's called? Sure. The, Illustrated, the Oxford Illustrated History of Modern China, <clears throat> edited by Jeff Wasserstrom, who's right here. Uh, my name is Bill Callahan. I'm in the International Relations Department. Welcome to our uh, talk tonight. And rather than just talk about the book, I thought it would be good to use this as an opportunity to think about some of the broad themes that uh, we see in Chinese history and also in global history. And we're very happy to get uh, three great panelists to talk uh, tonight. The first is uh, Jeff Wasserstrom. <clears throat> As I mentioned, he's, let's see, I have to get this right. He's a historian of modern China and the chancellor's professor of history at the University of California at, at Irvine. And his research interests began with the role of student protests and have grown to include the social history of China and comparative social history. And as I said, he's the editor of this fine book. Um, I guess I should also say I have a chapter in the book, so that's one reason for me to promote it so shamelessly. Um, the next person to my left is uh, <clears throat> Professor Lee Jenko, who joined the LSE in 2012, but was at the National University of Singapore and other places before that. She's just published a, a book with OUP, same publisher, um, called Changing Reference, Learning Across Space and Time in China and the West. And Lee is, is very well known as a, um, a person who studies political theory and Chinese thought at the same time. Usually you do one or the other, and she's very good at, at bringing Chinese texts and ideas into broad discussions of political theory in general. Um, the last person to my left <clears throat> is Isabel Hilton, who is a very famous person, very famous journalist. Uh, she's worked for um, the BBC, and uh, she was the editor of OpenDemocracy.net, and now she's the editor of ChinaDialogue.net, uh, uh, which is a great place that talks about um, the environment in particular, uh, in both in Chinese and in, in English. So it's one of these really interesting NGOs that is not just about kind of what Western people should know. It's really a place where people can exchange views in, in speaking both Chinese and English. Um, so we'll start off with Jeff and then kind of move down and then come back to me. Uh, for, we'll speak for about five minutes each and then we'll open it up to questions. Great. It's a real pleasure to be here and to be sharing a stage with, um, with these people, all of whom I read and learn from. And I expect to do the same in listening at this point. Um, what I wanted to talk about was um, a couple of broad themes. This is a book with multiple contributors. And so it tells the story of China from um, the middle of the 17th century up to the present, and even looks forward toward where China might be heading. Um, with dealing with China, there are different things that you do as a historian dealing with different parts of the world. There are some places that people don't know anything about and realize they don't know anything about, and then you're just simply informing them. With China, often people have had a sense, even far from China, that they know something about it. And often there can be a challenge of unsettling some of the assumptions that people might have. And people within China, I think, especially now when the past is being used very strategically uh, by the authorities to put forward a particular view of China, there's an, also a need to 
not just try to fill in gaps, but also try to unsettle things that people think they know. Um, it's nice having Bill as the other contributor to the book here, because one of the things that I wrote was the introduction that begins things, and he writes one of the, the last chapters. In the introduction, I won't say much about it, except that one of the things I thought was important to unsettle was a notion that there's something out there called Chinese culture, a Chinese approach to this or that, which some people, which has had this recurring life, that there'll be an idea that China is defined by an interest in hierarchy, extended families, a kind of love of stability, and people will think about, just think about the famous novel, The Dream of the Red Chamber, which has this multi-generational family that are all kind of, everybody knows their place. And that's what some people will say is that's like the Chinese way. But there's another very famous uh, popular novel of enduring significance that I also bring into the introduction, which is Journey to the West, in which the hero is the monkey king who turns heaven and earth upside down. And it's as Chinese and as fundamentally linked to Chinese culture and what China is all about as the other vision. So the first thing to do is to put two things in your mind rather than one. And if a book can do that through um, many examples, I think that's, that's a valuable thing with China. The other thing that is going on when people think about China in relation to history is often a time a notion either that China is this strange place impervious to change or that at a certain moment China became utterly unlike what it was before. In the 19th century, it was uh, some of the most famous um, theorists, it seems right to say this at LSE, whether you were reading Karl Marx or Max Weber, you would be reading about China as this place of enduring change, set apart from history, immune to the kinds of uh, changes that were going other places. And so that's one kind of idea of timeless China. There's another idea of China of utter break. After, during the Cold War, it was often thought that after 1949, China stopped being what it was and became a new China, a communist China that had very little to do with what it had, had been before. Now the Communist Party is trying to tell a story about both representing the revolution and representing kind of enduring Chinese values. So there's something else going on. But I think in our minds there's the idea that China has totally changed or China never changes. And I just wanted to mention two years that are interesting to think about that aren't the ones that people often bring up just now when they think about um, how to think of China connected to some time <coughs> in its past. Um, there's been a lot of discussion lately. It's the 50th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution. So there's a lot of discussion, is Xi Jinping like Mao? Or is Xi Jinping like an emperor of an old dynasty? Um, these are two images that have come through in the, in the popular press. And I want to take two moments that, are, um, that are, are, are different than either 50 years ago or centuries ago and just talk about how briefly China is utterly unlike what it was and surprisingly like what it was at the time. So the one year I wanted to bring up is 1900. The Boxer Uprising took place that year, a, a kind of militant messianic approach to try to rid China of all um, foreign influence, uh, particularly Christianity, which the Boxers blamed for the world getting out of whack, their world and the terrible drought afflicting the land. And then China was invaded by, uh, by armies from eight different parts of the world and um, was laid very low. The, to suppress the boxers, the, the foreigners came in uh, to save civilization and then went around committing some atrocities of their own. When people talked about China's future, the topic of this, there was a lot of discussion. What's, what's China's future going to be like? 
And when one of the things that people thought might well happen to China was a future that didn't happen. They thought now that, the, that China's been invaded, it will become a colony, just like, just like India. I spent earlier today reading um, Indian uh, newspapers, translations of Indian newspapers from 1900, and there was a lot of discussion in the Indian uh, vernacular press there that the colonial office very nicely translated into English, saying, China, your future is what our past was. You are about to suffer the same fate that we did, being carved up by foreign powers, taken over by foreign powers. You will become a colonized um, place. That didn't happen, obviously. China went a different route. After that, it had revolutions, and it gradually moved forward to being a very strong state. And so now if we think about 1900, it's actually a real study in contrast. Far from the question being when, you, when China and the future are brought together, far from the idea of China having a future that would be colonized, now there's more discussion of China becoming a kind of um, a power that is exerting um, energy and control over other places. There's a talk of that it may already, in a sense, have um, colonized, the West would say this, the people within China wouldn't, places like Tibet and Xinjiang and the islands. It's expanding. If China's going to do anything, it's going to get bigger, not smaller. So that's a real study in contrast from 1900 and um, the present. But another moment I want to draw your attention to just quickly is the year 1946. That was right after World War II. And when people talked about what China's future might be then, China had just been one of the allies that had won uh, the Second World War. Um, it seemed to be emerging as possibly one of the great powers. It was given a permanent seat on the UN Security Council just formed then. It looked as though it, it might be truly on, on a rise at last, but it had this one problem. It had um, a ruling party in power that was seen as riddled with corruption, and it wasn't clear if the person in charge would be able to rein in this problem of corruption in order to achieve this kind of um, great future. And actually, I think there are a lot of parallels between the way China was being discussed in 1946 and the way it's um, being discussed now. The person in charge of China then was a man named Chiang Kai-shek. And many of the things that we could say about Chiang Kai-shek could also be said about Xi Jinping. Chiang Kai-shek led a one-party state. It was the Nationalist Party that he ran that was that. He had very little tolerance for dissent, just as Xi Jinping has very little tolerance for dissent. He thought that the big problem he had to overcome was that he was widely viewed, his party was widely viewed as, as corrupt, riddled with corruption. So he launched anti-corruption drives. Uh, Xi Jinping has been doing that as well. There were efforts to get, cadre, to get uh, officials to have less lavish banquets and things. That was one of the ways they wanted to symbol. They were, symbolize they were serious about anti-corruption. Xi Jinping has been doing that as well. Um, Chiang Kai-shek presented himself to the world as much more like a leader of a, of, of a Western country than certainly not like the old emperors of, of old. And one way he did is he, he traveled around with, he, he had a wife who could speak to foreign audiences well um, and was stylish and was seen as a very modern person. Xi Jinping has, has one as well. Xi Jinping, by the way, is now being called president of China. He still gets his power from being uh, chairman of the Communist Party, but we don't focus on that as much. We focus on how he, is, he operates in ways that are similar to, um, to other leaders. But that corruption thing is something that if you read the discussions of China's future from 1946, Thunder Out of China was the big book on China for that year, there'll be, will China be able to pull it together, or will corruption 
uh, drag it down and keep it. And that's something that's, that's also being said then. Chiang Kai-shek liked to quote Sun Yat-sen, an earlier revolutionary leader, and he was of the party that, that Sun Yat-sen had founded. Just as uh, Chiang Kai-shek likes to quote Sun Yat-sen, Mao likes to quote, uh, I mean, Xi Jinping likes to quote Mao. But Chiang Kai-shek said, but we should also remember the values of Confucius. Similarly, Xi Jinping um, invokes that past as well. Um, just this year, I, I've been thinking about these kind of connections, but just this year, the Panama Papers came out. And the one, they don't mention Xi Jinping as squirreling money away, but they mention that he has this brother-in-law who's gotten suspiciously wealthy through his connections to the man in charge. Well, Chiang Kai-shek was actually superior to Xi Jinping. He had two corrupt brothers-in-law. And Thunders Out of China was among those who talked about H.H. H. Kong and T.B. Song. These very much. So this kinds of, these kinds of analogies are not perfect. There are all kinds of holes can be poked in and you know, there are all kinds of ways that um, you know, China is a booming economic power. Now it wasn't a booming economic power in 1946. There were different ways. It's an imperfect analogy. But I think analogies are worth putting side by side, even when they're imperfect, if they get us to sort of question assumptions we had. And I'll end with one twist on the analogy, the, the fact of going back to 1900. I said going back to 1900, you see China, you see a study in contrast. China was weak then, it's strong now. China was, um, was actually feared then as a place that had this kind of wild violence that was uncontrollable. That's what the boxers represented. There was talk of this yellow peril. There were people on the other side of the world who we couldn't understand, who were motivated by beliefs that we couldn't understand. And there were wars going on in all parts of the world in, in 1900. There was the Boer War in South Africa. There was a war in the Philippines. <coughs> the, the strong countries were trying to maintain control and, and exert influence in many parts of the world and went to many parts of the world saying they were going there to restore civilization. But then in some cases, they committed atrocious acts that people said, it's actually, we claim to be protecting civilization, but why do we act so barbarically? That world, take China out of it, and think of not of China as a place that's seen as a weak country, and you actually see a lot of things that make 1900 as different as it is for China, not so different from the world we're living in now. Then the fear was the yellow peril. There was a fear of, of this kind of um, irrational violence from people who had very different beliefs, and now we have that fear of, um, of Islam, and rat, of radical Islam. And at that time, too, there were things that we would now call international peacekeeping forces. They didn't use the term then. They just said the allies went to China to restore order. But then they got uh, involved in doing some um, things that made people uncomfortable, much like when uh, the United States and other countries invaded Afghanistan. At first, it seemed a clearly moral mission, but then images of Abu Ghraib came out. So there are ways in which the world then and the world now is not so different, even if China was different. There's one, um, I've been reading a lot about 1900, and there's one line about how the foreign powers invade uh, China, and I'll just leave you with this. And a year later, they're still there. Uh, they were supposed to just come in, restore order, and get out. And there was one saying that the allies have found, the powers have found it easier to get into Peking than to get out. And if you read that as an American, it sounds an awful lot like Baghdad. I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. And uh, <clears throat> Lee? Um, thanks. Actually, a lot of what I'm going to say um, has a lot of, I think, thematic resonances with what Jeff um, was talking about. So I want to talk about another, um, I suppose, emblematic moment in Chinese history, and that is the May 4th movement of 1919. 
Um, just a quick survey. How many of you have actually heard of the May 4th movement? Oh, good. A good number of you. All right. Um, so typically, the May 4th movement is understood as an iconoclastic resistance or, or overturning of the Chinese tradition um, undertaken by a group of radical students and professors um, in response to Chinese treatment under the terms of the Versailles Treaty. Right? And typically, the movement is also seen simultaneously as dovetailing with other, other intellectual currents ongoing at the time that's often typically called the New Culture Movement. And the New Culture Movement and the May 4th Movement were meant to introduce Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy to China, to use the terms uh, Chen Duxiu, one of the most radical of these May 4th voices, called, um, um, called these values. And, and this is sort of how it's recorded in, in lots of different history books. But only recently are we starting to uncover, um, in my own work and the work of many others, um, a more multidimensional picture of the May 4th movement. And the reason this more multidimensional picture is important, of course, it's more historically accurate, which is inherently uh, valuable. But the reason I bring it up tonight in the context of a, of a panel on the history of China's future is to showcase the idea that actually even at this moment of intense anti-traditionalist iconoclasm, there was nevertheless many voices who were still confronting the possibility of the Chinese past and what they called the national heritage, Guogu, having value, um, having value not just to China, but also to the world. So we see something similar happening today um, in Xi Jinping's China with, with the rise of Confucianism and the promotion of Confucianism as a, as a uniquely Chinese way of viewing the world that can supplant or replace so-called Western civilization or Western values that are usually based on something like rugged individualism, capitalism, um, and, and autonomy, and, and liberal democracy in particular. But I think that if we understand the May 4th movement um, in light of not just its iconoclasm, but also the voices that resisted that iconoclasm, and took seriously the possibility that Chinese thought and Chi the Chinese past might have something of enduring value to offer to the world, I think we might be in a better position to evaluate what we're seeing in China today. So let me give you an example uh, of the kinds of things that were being said and the kinds of attitudes that were being expressed by a number of actually young students, like many of the the, the people in this audience, but you all look a lot younger than I do. Um, young, vital, enthusiastic students, a lot of them concentrated at Beijing University, um, writing um, academic journal articles and, and newspaper magazine articles, um, talking about how the Chinese past could be of value in the present. Now, among these enthusiastic students, um, none of them denied that what they called Europeanization, ohua, um, that is Western science, technology, and even democratic values would be important, and not just in the future of the world, but also in the future of China. But what they did say, and what often gets overlooked by a lot of historical recollections of this period and a lot of historical narratives of this period, is actually that the Chinese past isn't as salient as its detractors would have us believe. It's not as powerful. That is to say, its grip on the present is actually not as strong as people like Chen Duxiu and his, with his call for Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy would have us believe. But rather, the problem is precisely that the Chinese past lays, um, in the words of, of one particularly enthusiastic um, student named Yu Shijun, it lies like coins on the ground 
So they're just sort of scattered there. The problem is that we don't know enough about the Chinese past. And what we have to do, what our mandate should be then, is to actually take this past and organize it. And many of these students, mentored by um, the well-known classicist Liu Shipei, um, called for a reorganization of the national heritage. They said what we need to do is actually gain more knowledge about the Chinese past. In fact, and part of this included using contemporary, what they called European or Western historiographical techniques of scientific verification, and graft those onto existing ways of chi- existing modes of doing Chinese historiography associated with the Kaohsiung movement, which is a movement that began, I believe, in the 17th century um, with its calls for evidentiary, uh, it's sometimes translated into English as evidentiary learning or evidentiary studies. It was a very proto-scientific text-based account of verifying um, ancient texts, scripts, um, as a means of understanding the the, the received canon, the received text of wisdom that had sort of been passed down um, through the ages, and also showing whether or not it was actually um, certain versions of received text, if they were authentic or not, right? If they, if, that, if they authentically represented the voices of the sages, like Confucius and Mencius. Um, so associated with this movement, there were a number of students who saw lots of parallels between something like this and Rankian historiography, for example, or, or the more proto-scientific methods that they were adopting from um, people like John Dewey, um, who was working in Columbia at the time, right? So what they said was, if we actually take up this past and we organize it according to these scientific principles or these principles of evidentiary learning. Um, What comes into view are some exciting new ways of sort of gaining, um, building continuity with a past that had actually um, been been obscured from view for a long time. One of the most interesting parts of this past is actually this this line of scientific reasoning that they're uncovering um, and that form part of their own, uh, many of them had been trained as classical scholars in their childhood. Um, so one of the interesting things about this is exactly that the past they were confronting um, was very different from the past that was being criticized by their more radical May 4th compatriots, right? It actually had very little to do with Confucianism as it's promoted and identified in, in the PRC today, right? Um, in the PRC today, this idea of Confucianism has a lot to do with what Jeff was mentioning, this family value. I guess you could call them, put them under the rubric of Asian values, like this emphasis on, on social hierarchy, on harmony, social harmony, on family um, sort of togetherness and interconnectedness. Um, and to them, a lot of this actually made no sense. And you have people like Yu Shijun criticizing Chen Jushu and others for sort of characterizing, caricaturizing um, what was actually there in the Chinese past. And so some of the inspiration I take from, these, from, from this more multidimensional view of, of May 4th um, thinking um, is that we actually look at the, the future of China's past um, more uh, broadly to include not simply Confucianism and the kind of isms that we've sort of reduced um, the history of Chinese thought to, but rather um, see it in its multidimensionality, right? See it as, as actually possessing not just one, multiple threads um, that can be taken up and sort of sutured to the present as a way of understanding where the, pre- where the future is going, right? Now, among these students, um, uh, among these students and their, and their sort of mentors in the publishing world as well as at the university was someone named Du Yatran. And Du Yatran was actually, a, he was trained as a scientist, but he became very interested in what he called the values of Eastern civilization um, later in his life. And so one of the things that he was promoting was the fact that, well, it might actually be the case um, that China was not simply um, a throwback. It wasn't simply the primitive state, the primitive stage of civilization that Western nations 
with their evolutionary theory we're painting it to be. Right? Um, so he offers us another way of thinking about temporality and the history of the future. Right? Um, how do we think about the stages through which we pass? Right? And are all, are all of those stages shared by all nations in the world? Um, so I think that if we understand the, the past, um, not just what the past was, but also how people in the past thought about themselves and thought about their relationship to that past, um, we might have a clearer view of, of how to interpret what's going on and also a way of maybe potentially articulating some alternatives to it. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Lee. Um, before we move on to Isabel, I should remind you that we actually have a hashtag for Twitter users. Or it's uh, hashtag LSE China. So tweet away. Uh, Isabel? Thank you very much, Bill. And, um, and it's a great pleasure to be here. I think uh, as, as at least one member of the panel who has nothing to do with the book, I can honestly recommend it uh, without, uh, without self-promotion. And I do. It's a very um, it's a, an excellent work. Um, I, I was particularly interested by the use of images. It is the Oxford Illustrated History of China. And a lot of those um, images are part of what I'm going to talk about. Um, but also lots of resonances with what's already been said. And I think that if we're, if we're kind of loosely examining the history of China's future, what, what always strikes me in discussions like this is how far back the contemporary debates go. I mean, we are still talking, really, about a lot of the things that, that, that came into the, the public discussion more than 100 years ago. So the role of science, the role of democracy. What is China? You know, this question of identity of China. Um, old civilization, young country, still very much a work in progress. And a work, you know, this, this, this thing has been kind of battered back and forth, um, complicated by the Communist Party's attempt to subsume all of Chinese identity, to say, you know, the Communist Party and China are, are in a sense, one thing, which has, has suppressed the debate in part, but it, but it has never gone away. And the other thing is, of course, Confucius and the relationship to the past, because although... You know, there was ambivalence, perhaps, at the beginning of the 20th century about Confucius. There were a lot of people like Lu Xun who were very convinced that Confucius was the root of yeah. all of China's troubles. And, you know, and, and this goes back and forth, and then it reemerges. When I first went to China in, in 1973, Confucius was again a focus of, of really virulent criticism. So picking up on, on some of those themes, um, I will suggest that I talk about, about images and, and photography, um, partly because he knows the story I'm, I'm going to tell you. But when I, when I first went to China, I went to study um, I, part of a group of 12 British students who were the first students to go uh, as foreign students to China uh, from the West. Uh, it, it was still the Cultural Revolution. And... Um, it was only a few years, it was six years since uh, Red Guards had uh, burned down the British Embassy. Um, relations had been a little tricky, uh, but were on the mend. Um, Chinese universities had only just come back. Um, they had been disbanded effectively in the Cultural Revolution. Students had been sent to the countryside. So we found ourselves in a China which was... Uh, dominated very, very much by a very rigid ideology. Um, the Cultural Revolution was still referred to as uh, uh, so the great proletarian Cultural Revolution. And these, you know, the use of this language, we lived in slogans and there was a great deal of language that simply wasn't permitted and, and the rest of the language was compulsory. So 
to talk about the uh, cultural revolution, it had to be Wu This gradually kind of bits of it dropped off as the cultural, as, uh, after 1976, after the death of Mao, the cultural revolution began to be reevaluated. It, it simply, you know, became, uh, when, when it, it was shortened to Winda in my days, so great, great culture, um, and it became Wunge, you know, just cultural revolution. So, so the kind of the the the, the, val- the valorizing had, had been stripped out of it as the as the opinion changed. Um, we were uh, quite anomalous when we arrived. There hadn't really been very many foreigners, and there weren't foreigners around who were kind of on the streets. So, you know, there were foreigners fell into various categories. There were people in coaches who were largely. Um, friendship tourists of one sort or another and then there were diplomats who tended to be in cars and in enclaves there were one or two teachers but younger people who were kind of around on bicycles and doing ordinary things insofar as we could were very anomalous and large crowds would gather you couldn't go out without an enormous crowd gathering and, and people kind of gathering around to stare um, but not to communicate, really. Um, after a while, you could hear them describing and discussing you, you know, for everything from the fact that you were wearing leather shoes to the amazing size of your nose, or was your hair really that color, and that kind of stuff would go on, but, but, but not engaging, because engaging with foreigners was very, very dangerous and had been, you know, extraordinarily dangerous. It had ruined your life if you, if you had a foreign connection. So the other theme that I think is very much around now is the ambivalence that China has towards the foreign you know and this includes you know what China's place is in the world and what's the place of the foreigner in China and we've seen a return of this um, I think under under Xi Jinping so in terms of of images um, I mean our it's hard to talk to a room full of digital natives about what it was like in the analog age. In China, there were very few cameras. Almost nobody had cameras, uh, and, and photographs were physical objects. So they fell into a number of categories. Though you would, might have a black-and-white mugshot for identification purposes, and, and occasionally you would see displays on the street of... Um, there were glass-fronted display cases where you'd see lots of mugshots, some with red crosses... Uh, over them, and those were people who were had been executed, or you know, people who had fallen out of favour in one way or another, had been had been criticised or tried, or in extreme cases executed. Um, there were um, group photographs, commemorative photographs, and there were even uh, still photographic studios where you could go and you could sit in a, a, a mock-up of a, a Chinese plane, and a kind of uh, air force plane, uh, and put on a hat and pretend to be a Chinese pilot. Though when one of us tried it, it was not for foreigners. Um, It's a pity, but uh, Chinese would do this. But the images that dominated were all, of course, uh, propaganda images. So they were very, um, you know, in in Chinese propaganda images, the peasants were always well-fed and happy, you know, the workers were always resolute, uh, the soldiers were always brave, and the party was always adored, and the colour, and the sun always shone. So that the arrival of people with cameras who were taking pictures of Chinese reality was almost in itself a, a hostile act. You know, the control of of the of the image was a, was pretty, very built in to um, to the party's propaganda, and propaganda was extremely fierce at the time. In um, however. Um, 
the party itself was in the middle of a two-line struggle. Um, so in 1969, at the party congress, the Gang of Four had pretty much seized control. But by 1973, there were two factions. Deng Xiaoping had, had returned, Zhou Enlai was still around, and there was a, a, a fight over the increasingly ailing Mao Zedong's uh, power as to who would carry forward uh, China's politics and what they would look like. The Deng Xiaoping faction uh, was trying to normalize China. So we, um, and, and that included culture, it included how China presented itself, and it included how China uh, uh, opened to the world. So hence our presence, the idea that the universities had to open again to, to foreign students and had to send students abroad. Um, that was, we were you know, part of the very beginnings of that. Um, and then there was the question of how China presented its image. Um, China's propaganda films at the time were um, slightly, shall I say, less than convincing. I remember one, um, I don't know if you remember the Usuri River incident, where, which is it's the border between, uh, between Russia and China, and, and it's... it's it's a border uh, with, which I guess runs down the middle of the river. I, I actually forget the details, but there was a, there was a fight over whether, you know, which bank of the Asuri River was actually the border. And this, this was fought out between Chinese fishermen and, and Russian border guards. And I, the, the Chinese produced a black and white propaganda film about this in which the commentary at one point said, the brave Chinese fishermen struggled tit for tatly with the, uh, with the revisionist uh, Russian guards. And, and, and Zhou Enlai, being a sophisticated chap, recognized that this wasn't really going to you know, persuade anyone in the West. So he, he invited uh, an Italian filmmaker called uh, Antonioni, who was a left-wing um, filmmaker to Ota, you know, very well known in the West, to come and make a film about China, arguing that, you know, to have a sympathetic Westerner make a film about China would be much more effective in the West than than Chinese, China's own propaganda efforts. So in 1972, they spent a couple of months filming in China, and they finished the film by 1973. But by Spring Festival 1974. Uh, three new campaigns were launched. Um, one was Pilen um, Pikung, maybe had been going for a bit. So criticize Lin Biao and Confucius. Uh, the second one was criticize Beethoven. And the third one was criticize Antonioni. Now, <laughs> Beethoven and Antonio are really quite hard to say. So you have Pilen Pikung, that's very snappy, you know, P. Beethoven and P. Antoni Oni. And this was about the film. It was about uh, this, this, what was described as, as an anti Chinese uh, uh, film made by the uh, notorious uh, China enemy Antonioni. Um, and and, and it, this was a proxy for the, the battle between the two factions uh, within the party. We were uh, invited to criticize the film, but pointed out we hadn't actually seen it, which didn't seem to be an obstacle to, uh, <laughs> to others criticizing it. Um, but one of the, uh, one of the points that, in which it had erred uh, was that it was considered to have been disrespectful in some way to the Nanjing Railway Bridge, um, and uh, uh, because, although you, you remember that's a highly symbolic bridge, because it was the bridge that the Chinese completed after the withdrawal of the Russian experts in, in the Sino-Soviet split in 1961. So China had, you know, it had, uh, it had completed the, the bridge. And when this um, bridge was filmed, uh, the camera had panned down to the river, 
beneath it where there were lots of boats and on one of the boats where people lived and worked there was some laundry. This was regarded as a kind of monstrous attack uh, on, on the People's Republic. So I, I, I knew that from the propaganda but I hadn't seen the film. Anyway, to cut a long story short, one day uh, I was walking in Haidien uh, about four weeks after the Antonioni uh, campaign began and I took a photograph, as I often did, uh, out, uh, out and about. And um, I took a photograph of two people mixing, uh, two women mixing cement in the street. Ordinary, everyday scene. And a few yards further on, a uh, rather hatchet-faced gentleman with a, wearing leather shoes and a zip-up jacket, which was significant and it marked out his status, uh, stopped me with a friendly greeting, Ni you know, what are you doing? Um, and then it sort of began, and I, I imagined afterwards that he'd been standing in the sunshine thinking, what am I to do about this anti-Antoni-Oni campaign? And, and there I was, <laughs> with my camera, you know, heaven sent. And so there began a, you know, a struggle session about why did you come to this broken-down part of Beijing? This was Haidian, this was, you know, and deliberately take this anti-Chinese photograph, right? So this is what, what's known as a leading question in a British court. Um, <laughs> to, to which I improvised, I thought rather swiftly, um, I, uh, I am trying to show that Chinese women hold up half the sky. And there they are, you know, working, mixing cement. Um, but this didn't satisfy, and, and it didn't satisfy because once this ritual began, the entire neighborhood had to take part, or they would have been criticized for failing to take part. So we ended up inside the local street committee headquarters with about 50 people going through this ritual. So someone would stand up and say, why did you come to this, uh, deliberately come to this broken-down part of Beijing to take this anti-Chinese photograph? And I would give my answer, and then they would say, hand over your film, and I would try to hand over the film, and they'd say, don't think you can get away with it so easily, because everybody had to do it. So I, I realized very quickly that this was theater, this was ritual, and that you just had to sit it out until being rescued by the police, which we were, maybe there were two of us. There were, so five hours later, the police arrived, and said, hand over your film, and I handed over my film, and they took it. So there we are, and they drove me back to the, um, to the Languages Institute. But ever after that, whenever I raised a camera, uh, somebody was looking for the anti-Chinese view. And, and of course, there always was one, because China was poor, tired, you know, China was in black and white, and propaganda was in technicolor. And there was no way of, of representing China in a way that would fit uh, would fit the image. But it was also about the assumption that the foreigner had an evil intention. And I think that as we fast forward to today, what, we, you know, what does it tell us about what's happening today? I think one of, the, <coughs> um, one of the disturbing things that we've seen in the last 18 months is uh, a return of the idea, even though China is now out in the world, even though you know, China depends on the world and the world depends on China, that, that we've seen in this attempt again to define what China is and what China's political future is, the default position is that, that the outside world is hostile, that the foreigner cannot be trusted, and, and that the foreigner uh, has, has some kind of evil intention. And I think that probably I'll pause there. But I, I think that those elements of the Cultural Revolution, and we have just had this 
curious debate about the 50th anniversary of the, of the Cultural Revolution, triggered partly by that extraordinary concert in the Great Hall of the People, um, which, which was itself quite disturbing to a lot of Chinese. And the unresolved questions of Chinese history, the unresolved questions of the Cultural Revolution, and the unresolved questions of China's place in the world and its relationship to the non-Chinese world, I think remain as active as ever. Okay, thank you, Isabel. Um, it's a hard it's act to follow. Like that after no. struggle <laughs> session. <laughs> um, let's see. Should we just go straight into Q and A, or should I give my spiel? My spiel is. Um, I started studying. China in the early 1980s, and I sort of missed the boat because I wanted to be a Maoist, and I didn't really know that Maoism was over, and that China had given up Maoism. Fortunately or unfortunately, one of my undergraduate professors was a diehard Maoist, so that's why I learned how to make revolution. Um, no, he taught us how to make revolution. We had a final year course on how to make a revolution, and um, I got an A. <laughs> so if somebody out there is tweeting, Bill Callahan admits to being a Maoist. A Maoist revolutionary. A Maoist revolutionary. Don't tweet that, please. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I was fascinated by the sort of the other China, not the modern, hyper-modern hyper revolutionary Marxist China, but this sort of traditional China. So I also started studying Chinese philosophy. And at that point... It, Nobody studied Chinese philosophy. Nobody cared about Chinese philosophy. If you were interested in ideas from outside the West, you studied Japan. Japan was hot. You know, uh, Japan was number one, as the book told us. And so it was a very, it was an interesting way of sort of doing nothing, kind of studying something that was useless. And that's why I like Zhuangzi, the Chinese philosopher, <laughs> who's about about being useless, about doing nothing, about undoing things. And I I noticed that the the main idea or the main concept, the guiding concept of Chinese philosophy in many ways is harmony. Okay, and we hear a lot about harmony now, but I and other people notice that in the 70s and 80s, harmony was just not in the vocabulary because in, in Marxist China, it was about struggle, okay, class struggle, not harmony. Harmony is, is the wrong thing to do. And even, even the word for harmony, he, was not understood as harmony, it was understood as a conjunction. It was understood as and, A-N-D. So harmony went from being the center of a civilization to being a very simple um, grammatical. conjunction, gr grammatical part particle. And so that is sort of, over the past many years, I've kind of thought about how harmony and Chinese thought has reborn again. And even when I was starting to study it, as a student in the 80s, it was already getting hot in China. In the 1980s, they had the culture fever, and people started studying Chinese thought and Confucianism, even uh, uh, in the kind of mid to late 1980s. Um, but what was very curious is how this jumped from academics and philosophy departments to the centers of power and kind of not... Uh, the people who were studying harmony at the turn of the 21st century were not just the people in the um, 
elite universities like Peking University or, or Fudan, um, but it was also in the party schools. So it's this, in China, <clears throat> you may know, they have a whole bunch of places where you study things, and there is this parallel universe of party schools. So every, every city has a party school, every uh, province has a party school, and then there's a central party school in Beijing. And a lot of people go there to, uh, cadres go there to learn things. Um, people make a career out of being a professor, not at an elite university, but at these party schools. And what was curious is that at the turn of the 21st century, there was this huge debate going on amongst these party schools and these military institutes about whether great harmony, uh, datong, was a good idea and whether it's a good idea for the 21st century. And there were a lot of articles, hundreds and hundreds of articles were published um, arguing for and against great harmony. Um, but they were not arguing for or against great harmony as a Confucian idea, whether it made sense for Confucianism or Chinese tradition. They were doing it in terms of Marxism. You know, did it, did it work for the Communist Party? And that was a very interesting twist, and it, it all revolved around um, utopia. So Marx told us that uh, his socialism is not a utopian socialism, it's not this sort of airy-fairy socialism, he has a scientific socialism. Um, Datong, uh, Great Harmony, is a very utopian view of Chinese thought that's been around for 2,000 years or so. So some people who didn't like it, as good Marxists, they said, this is utopian, this is horrible, it led to lots of peasant uprisings, even though Mao liked peasant uprisings, um, at the end of the day, they all failed. They didn't lead to any big social change. We have to hold on to Marx, a Marxist view of the stages of history. And, but then there was this counter-argument that, yes, it's a utopia, but Marxism is a utopia too, and that um, Datong and the Marxist communist utopia are actually the same thing. It's all about being equal in an egalitarian society. And this, this idea had been kicking around in the early 20th century as well. And what was very interesting is um, this debate went on for a couple of years, and then suddenly it stopped. And the people who liked Harmony and Datong won. And in 2003, uh, Hu Jintao came up with a new idea of a harmonious society. Um, and this as, as a way of thinking about dealing with all sorts of economic and social problems. Um, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of my colleagues say, well, this shows a shift from socialism to Chinese tradition or socialism to Confucianism. But that's why I, I thought it was interesting to point out that the debate actually went on amongst the Marxist theorists, not amongst the Chinese philosophy people. And that when you, when you read about harmonious society in Chinese, it's usually uh, called harmonious socialist society. So my point is, is the sort of similar thing that a lot of us have been saying here is that there's not this big shift from one to the other that we often hear about from uh, kind of traditional China to revolutionary China and back to some sort of nationalist China, that all sorts of things are going on and that this, this still is going on in, with Xi Jinping's uh, China dream idea is that the, his vision of the future, uh, according to the China dream, is this kind of strange and uneasy combination of a very socialist modernity, a very scientific, a very kind of economically driven modernity that also has these sort of Chinese traditional ideas of harmony. And there's all sorts of contradictions in it, but that doesn't seem to be a problem to the leaders anyway. Um, 
but that there's this, this is uneasy mix. And I guess that's what's most interesting to me about it is how trying to understand China in terms of one thing or look for the one China, as Jeff said at the beginning, is always a mistake and that it's, I think it's much more profitable and interesting to try and see how lots of things are going on and how they interact and how they contradict and how they work with each other. And that's actually where the politics takes place in China. Um, okay. Uh, so let's have a round of applause for all our speakers. And uh, someone is going around with a microphone. We'll open it up to a Q&A. There's someone right in front here. And I saw that laughter at the party schools, party schools, party <laughs> schools, which means something different in Southern California. Right. <laughs> uh, here, please. Hi, thanks very much, uh, and prize to, to Jeffrey for leading me down the she is like Mao and then putting in Chiang Kai-shek unexpectedly. <laughs> Top marks for that. Thanks to all of you. Um, the question I wanted to ask on the back of your kind of don't think China's so different or unitary, doesn't every country currently have a kids don't respect their parents or political elites are not respected, Donald Trump, you know, and that the kind of we need to have a Chinese dream or we need to hark back to some good version of our history as we've now redefined it, and I like your May 4th um, straw man of Chinese history thing. So in a way, isn't that the point, that, you know, China's not so different from every other country that's got some current view of, as I say, you know, that you know, every, everything's not as good as it should be, and, and let's hark back to some historical, better model to try and address that problem. I think, I think there's a lot of value in de-exoticizing certain kinds of things um, about China, which can you do by moving around the present, or you can move around the past. So I was struck by the fact that um, when the Asian values ideas were being talked about, that there were, um, one of the things that was said about Asian values was that um, there, was an, uh, there was a need for wise people to be setting control, that there was a danger for letting ordinary people take too much action because this would lead to chaos. And the great fear was chaos because you really needed um, stability. And democracy might come very far in the future when the, the level of society was raised, when education was raised. And this was something that was associated with Asian values, was the idea. But it was very much what I was reading in the um, largely British colonial press in Shanghai in the 1920s in responding to Asian calls for independence. would be like, you know, this would be a good thing. Eventually, there should be some kind of democracy, but first we need to raise people's levels. So that would be one of the perils. I think when I look around now, I do see... A lot of things going on in China, both about that using the past or nostalgia, but also I think there's a lot of um, purchase right now in many parts of the world to the idea that the world is a dangerous place, you need a strong leader, um, it's unsettling times, and that maybe, um, maybe this isn't the moment for a great deal of, of, of freedom of speech or things like that. A lot of people, Trump is very scary in America talking about what he would do to the press if he, if he got to do it, which very much like strong men in, in other places. 
And these aren't, these aren't just parallel, but they reinforce each other. And I think, in fact, that um, Trump being even thinkable has been a big, it undermines a sort of call for uh, a, a celebration of democracy or, or an imagining of the, the better uh, size of democracy in other places. Because I think within um, China, it normalizes this idea of um, the party's obsession with the fact that the world is dangerous, so you need to keep keep control. So I think there are a lot of a lot of parallels to do that. Anyone else want to? Um, just, uh, I mean, I I don't disagree with what Jeff said. I think if you're looking for parallels, there are a couple of other things that I point to between China and the wider world right now. One is a mistrust of elites, the sense that the elite has profited uh, at the expense of the people, and the sense that politics isn't working for people. So you see that in the states. You see that. And that the rise of nationalism and populism, which, which paradoxically, you know, is kind of what she's aiming at. You know, he's not. There is an element of ideology in his national revival, but it's it's more of a you know a personalised and popular appeal than we've seen for a long time to directly to the people in that kind of Weberian kind of way. And just one final thing, I think one place that you, to me, what's very ironic is in 1989 and 1991. The idea was that the Soviet Union had gone one, the Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union had gone one way. China had stayed communist. Uh, Russia had gone post-communist. But this appeal to deep cultural values and an imagined tradition and a strongman leader that she does is very, very similar to Putin. And so you can see that. And, and the distrust of elites and that kind of thing as well. Anybody else? Um, can you introduce yourself, Marie? Uh, hi, my name is Marie Thorsten. I'm a CIS fellow also in the International Relations Department of LSE. Um, thank you for the stimulating discussion, and I really love the title, by the way. Uh, one thing I didn't uh, hear was any narrative of the future of China as a technological power. Uh, is that very strong in China? I know it is somewhat in the West about the fear of China, you know, overtaking the West in uh, space technology and drones and military weapons and things like that. Um, I wonder if you have any comment about that. Well, there's a... There's a huge investment, as you know, in science and technology, and it's a strategic point. Um, you know, we've we've come to the end of the of the era of cheap manufacture and infrastructure building as the drivers of the Chinese economy, and and moving up technology chains is is a key part of of what how the how the party sees the future. So, hence the investment. Um, so, it's not just military technologies. Actually, there's an enormous investment also in. Uh, low carbon technologies and electric vehicles and anything that China regards as a technology <laughs> of the future in which it could hold a patent. So there's a lot of um, work going on in, um, in biosciences, in seeds, in all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, of work like that, pretty much in every area. Insofar as there's a debate, I mean, I don't think there's any debate about whether this is a good and desirable thing inside China. Um, there's a debate about innovation that you, you hear 
in much the same terms, actually, as you heard it around Japan and Taiwan. You know, can a heavily top-directed society really innovate? Does China have the conditions for innovation? What does innovation require? You know, and, and the way innovation has happened in the United States, is that the only model? Um, I think probably not. Uh, but but that's that's been the debate insofar as there has been one. But that China will be a, 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 a scientific and technological power, I, I really don't think there's much doubt. I mean, simply because there's a, just a huge effort being put into it, and China certainly has the talent. And, you know, why, not, why shouldn't it? Maybe is, is that particular narrative not just a debate, but is it also driving public policies in, in education and things like that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, if I could just sort of add the historical component or the side to this story. I mean, in, in as early as the 1860s or even earlier, people like Feng Fun were dreaming about this day. I mean, they were saying it, it, it will come a time when we, we Chinese can learn from Western ways so completely that we'll actually exceed them. And this was, this was a very powerful goal by, from very early on um, uh, by self-strengtheners, the Zitiang Yundong. Um, but one of the interesting things that, that we're seeing, one of the re- interesting reversals that we're seeing with this new um, um, trend for, for technological innovation in China is that in the 1860s, up until I think very, very recently, it was believed that the way to innovate was to reproduce Western values, right? So people like Yan Fu and Liang Qichao were calling on people to say, well, in order to actually advance, to understand, develop, and advance that science and technology that we're, we're, we're gleaning from the West, we actually have to become liberal, democratic individualists, just like Westerners, right? And now to me, the really interesting thing is, well, no, that that paradigm that has existed for so long, not just um, in the minds of Yen Fu and Liang Zichao, but in sociology and economics, I mean, that innovation happens one way, it has these certain requirements or criteria for its possibility are now being subverted, right? I mean, they have been subverted, I think, for the past 30 years, right? We've seen we've seen changes in the global economy, but... Um, it's an exci- it's actually an exciting time to think about the new cons- like how it, how it is that science and innovation develops and happens and what kinds of social and political values and institutions are required for it right i'll I'll just um, mention that I have a a photograph kind of following from isabel's thing that you could get a you couldn't but Chinese people could get a photograph of themselves in sort of a mocked up fighter plane. Mm-hmm. At the um, Shanghai Expo in 2010, they had a big uh, one of the space companies, the state state-owned enterprises that that builds uh, space rockets, had a a big pavilion, and you could go there and get your picture taken as a spaceman or a space woman, and um, and which is fine because you know China has astronauts. They don't call them that; they're Tycho knots um, since 2003. But what, what kind of irked me as an American was that they also had you take, they could take pictures of you walking on the moon, which China has not done. <laughs> so this is a dream. So I have a picture, I have a, I have a couple of pictures of myself in a Chinese uh, space suit doing stuff. Could you put them up? <laughs> I don't have them here. Oh, that's unfortunate. Since, um, since Lee mentioned uh, Liang Qichao, Liang Qichao, um, China's leading intellectual of around the, t- the turn of the century, he was passionate about science fiction, among other things. And he actually wrote a short story fragment 
the future of new China, in which he imagined a China to come that would have be at the center of the world. The, the way you were at the center of the world around 1900 was you hosted World's Fairs, which were for that period what Olympics are now. The way that you, there were powerful countries that could host those kinds of things and powerless countries that just had their arts and crafts and people put on display. And the powerful countries put their technologies on display. So he dreamed of this time in this future when the world would come to China for a World's Fair and would be addressed by a descendant of Confucius and they would be listening to um, Chinese philosophy. But he also thought translating science fiction would be really a good thing because it was kind of a twofer. He didn't use that word. But um, (laughs) by translating Western science fiction like Jules Verne, you learned about Western values and you learned about science and technology. So Lu Xun, the greatest um, modern Chinese writer who was um, inspired by Dong Chi Chao and so many other people, his first major publication was a translation of Jules Verne's Journey from the Earth to the Moon. And so if you think of an arc that goes forward to 2010, when China is hosting the World's Fair Expo, and the Olympic Games in 2008, this opening ceremony that begins with a quote by Confucius and ends with images of the moonshot, and, or images of a, an astronaut, rather. And I think what's new is that until recently, there's been fears of China in many, many times, but in the last... 150 years when there's been fear of China, it's fear of a kind of backwardness unleashed or fear of a massive population. And now there's a fear of that possibilities of technology. That's new. Though they're sometimes yoked together in peculiar ways. So there's a fear of Chinese um, hacking. And you get images of technological advance hacking, cyber, cyber war. But then you get images of massive numbers of Chinese hackers uh, working together. So it's that yoking together of that. There are so many of them, but now combined with the, and there could be this advanced technology. Okay. Uh, woman there, and please. There are some students here. Okay. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you for this very informative lecture. Uh, my name is Sherry. I'm an undergraduate student. Uh, so recently, there's a very popular TV show in China called The O to Joy, and uh, it shows five uh, young girls uh, from very different economic and uh, family backgrounds uh, pursuing their dreams in Shanghai. So um, this topic of class is once again being very heavily debated online. So uh, I think maybe this question is best addressed to Jeffrey. So uh, what's your, my question is, what's your opinion towards this notion that uh, in the contemporary China, the social structure is becoming more and more rigid, and there's little uh, upward nobility for uh, middle-class ordinary Chinese people. Uh, So considering only half a century ago, we have uh, been through such a so-called class struggle thing. Thank you. Thanks. One of my favorite things online is um, somebody scanned in a um, propaganda publication from 1950 or 51 that was a pair pairs of, and this gets to visuals, pairs of images, one of the old bad China and one of the new liberated China. And so there would be a variety of things. In the old China, and it said the, the poor were very, there was a gap between wealth and poverty. But now in the new China, everybody is the same. 
In the old China, there were corrupt, horrible officials. Now in the new China, there are pure uh, officials who care about um, everybody else. And the, the person who put this up online didn't just said, sometimes don't you wonder whether you're living in the before or the, rather than the after? But the one image, so I think one thing that is, is crucial about this moment is a lot of the stories that um, the Communist Party used to tell don't work anymore. The story about having made a more equal China. And that's been, but now, you know, very big Gini coefficients that, you know, that say very unequal. And the stories um, that they tell about, you know, purity of virtuous government, people don't believe that either. But there was another, there were a couple of other things in that, um, the, the before and after. The before and after showed before China was bullied by other countries. Now China stands up on its own. So that's actually the story that still works in a way the best by, for the Communist Party. And so part of the distinctive reason why nationalism is so crucial in um, the presentation of, uh, of China right now is that the authorities realize that they're running out, that some of the other stories they were telling really aren't, aren't working as well, so they're doubling down on the ones and amplifying the ones that are still working. So I think that notion of, um, of lack of opportunity is a very, is a very um, notable one. There was an interesting study, though, about um, thinking of parallels between different places. Um, there is, a, the, at least according to some of the studies, within China, there isn't necessarily among people a sense that uh, an ideal society would necessarily have people that were all enjoying similar material conditions. It's okay if there are some people who are getting rich, but if they're getting rich legitimately. There's a distrust of illegitimate kind of wealth, which is actually very, that's a parallel between China and America that I think is, is in America there's, there hasn't been a kind of anti-rich sentiment, it's anti-unfair rich sentiment. But so if you ask a lot of Americans, is the perfect society one in which most people are roughly the same um, material conditions? In China and in America, you'll get a lot of people saying, well, that might not be the most important thing. It might be, it's how you get the wealth. Whereas in certain other places, like um, parts of Northern Europe, there is an idea of an ideal society would be one in which people were in a much more kind of egalitarian thing. So um, ironically, now China and America kind of share it, a lack of interest in a certain vision of socialism. Though, of course, there are some people in both places who, who do. Thanks. Some. Do you still want to ask questions? You have any? Okay. Yeah. Um, Hi. Uh, do the grassroots for a Western-style multi-party democracy exist in China? If you think of China as including possibly Taiwan, Taiwan already has a multi-party democracy with a president who has an LSE PhD. <laughs> and she's a woman with, whose father and husband did not get her into power. So... There's right. one example. Yeah. Right. Right. That's yeah. very important. But she's an extremist because she's unmarried and has no children. She has, <laughs> she has cats. That's right. Yeah. She, she has cats. But I mean, as a, as a, that's a bit of a flippant answer to your question. You're talking about on, on mainland China, but I think it is important to note that well, no, China, the definition of what is China is right. itself a contested. No, that certainly there's nothing about Chinese culture that is yeah. that makes that. Hard to think. Yeah. You know, that's what I was going to say. Uh, Taiwan's a good example. And 
South Korea as well, because it shows that these notions that, oh, they can't do democracy is just wrong. So it's, it's more about kind of what is allowed within each society um, and how, you know, what people are interested in pushing for. An equally flipped question, answer is China actually claims, insists that it's a multi-party state. It's just only one party can exert any power. There are these other officially recognized parties that are allowed to be officially recognized as long as they don't cause any trouble or think they should have any power. Would you like a serious answer to your question? <laughs> should never predict. I, I can't, yeah, I can't predict, but I can tell you that I know that there are experiments on a local level of not just democracy, but forms of deliberative democracy and, and consultative bodies. Um, and there's a, there's a few political scientists who are looking at this as, as, as sort of a mini-experiment for thinking about how we might expand our notion of democracy, right? So we also have to ask, does democracy, multi-party democracy, uh, does it have to look like what we've, examples of what we've already seen? <coughs> or could it look different? And if it looks different, what does it look like? And this is an example where the current American situation makes it harder to make the argument within China that this is the best of all possible systems. So it's, China's not operating in a vacuum. You know, so when things are going well in democracies, then it helps the people who are arguing within China for that. But I, w- I think in, since this is part of about the future and we're talking about imagining, I, I don't want to make predictions, but if there were something that I could change right now about China, if, if feeling with the values that I have, I wouldn't change it by elections. I would do something else. I think a separation of powers is more significant in many ways than electoral processes. What's being Hong Kong doesn't have open free elections. Hong Kong at the moment does have a separation of powers, and it's enormously significant. When the umbrella protest took place, what was interesting was there were, uh, and as much as some things have eroded in China, um, the police arrested some of the students and claimed that they were being troublemakers, and the courts said, you've got to release them. Mm. On the mainland, that doesn't happen. You don't have a, a court operating by a separate set of rules and processes than um, the, the public security form. So I think if we want to, if I think about what do I what do I hope to see in a China that would be freer and that individuals would have more freedom? I think of some sort of checks on abuses of power by uh, the authorities in one way or another, which can come by this separation. And when I agree with Isabel, the last 18 months, and to a certain extent the last five years, have been incredibly distressing of where things are going. But it's not because China still doesn't have elections. It's because lawyers who are starting to crusade for people with rights, and we seem to be from year to year more of them doing more, have now been um, defanged or um, punished or leaving the country because they can't move things in that direction. And that's what, that's what I think about a lot more than elections, as, you know, as important as both as I would be to give up my right to vote against Trump soon. I absolutely. I think the whole idea of, of how you get from here to there is, is, is the missing part in your question, if I may say so. I think that 
that for a start there's a big fear of the transition in China which which derives from the collapse of the of, of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union which in and the lesson that the party drew from that was that they had a great deal to lose although actually if you look at what happened after 1989 or 1991-92 in most of those post-communist states the same elites reinvented themselves as social democrats or nationalists or whatever and and you know contested elections so on an individual basis but even as a kind of class, they didn't actually lose all that much. Uh, but it didn't seem like that at the time. About ten years ago, uh, when this discussion was seemed to be seemed to be a discussion about the future, um, which it, it now I think doesn't, um, a paper circulated in terms of how you get from here to there. A paper circulated, written by a Chinese political scientist. Uh, which, which essentially said the way to get to a democratic China is for the party to split into its constituent factions and to agree that you can contest power and that you don't get locked up if you lose or executed or whatever, you know, that it's safe to lose an election. And that, after all, what you have within the party is quite a spectrum of opinion and you have a bunch of people who know how to do politics and how to run the country. Um, that's sort of what happened in Hungary. In the Hungarian transition, which, if you recall, wasn't part of the 1989 upheavals, it was just a quieter process which had started before 1989 in which the party basically said this just isn't working and they kind of transitioned themselves um, into it doesn't look so good now but for a while it was a, 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 you know, a, a better looking democratic uh, transition and one that didn't involve upheaval or violence or chaos or disorder or any of the kind of big bad things that, that people in China will tell you uh, are, are part of the danger. So it's quite, it's, it's not just a discussion about whether China can do democracy. It's, it is a discussion about the current shape of the state, about how you imagine alternation of power and between whom and what the representative nature of that would be. And, and my last thing I would say that a Chinese political scientist friend used to say, be careful what you wish for, because if you had an election in China, you really don't know what might come out of it. But it would also raise all sorts of questions about what is China? What are you voting for? You know, what is this country? When you put in the hands of the people the notion of, of, of you know, the power to, to choose a leader and to define the country, you, you, it's an unfinished work right now in China. You know, back in 1911, 1912, if you'd asked people where they were from, they wouldn't have said China. They would have said Henan or or, or Changsha, or they would have called themselves something quite other. But the notion of China as a, as a kind of entity that encompassed all the identities of all the people in it was was pretty non-existent. It's, and and you know that has been in the process of construction. But of course, it leaves out of account lots of people who live in China who don't associate themselves with Confucianism, who don't speak. Chinese who have, who have different religious and cultural traditions, who certainly don't identify with with you know the current projection of China in Beijing. You know this is a complicated place, and uh, electoral politics tend to tend to uh, allow those different identities and often conflicting identities to flourish. They can flourish safely in certain political systems, or they can be conflictive. If, if the political um, construct uh, doesn't match the, uh, the need. So I think it's 
It's certainly not an overnight job in China, but the first step is for the party not to be above the law, for, for the law to apply to everybody. At the moment, the party just is an entity that commands the law and, and is not subject to it. I will predict uh, when democracy will come Ooh. to China, because that's what I do. <laughs> You're taking bets yes. here, Bill. February 2039, 20, right? Uh, not just me. A bunch of people are saying that um, around 2035, things could change. And why 2035? Probably because it's far enough in advance that uh, <laughs> people have forgotten the prediction you made. But, but in China, people think of leadership in terms of generations. So Mao is the first generation. Now we're, we're with the fifth generation leadership. And people are looking at what they call the what will be called the seventh generation leadership. And these are people who were born in the early 1980s, are called the post-80s generation. They're one-childs, kind of the first one-child generation in China. They grew up in the 1980s when things were quite liberal or kind of opening. Uh, lots, uh, lots going on. They're kind of the the 1989 massacre is a big event for them, um, and they've kind of enjoyed the kind of expanding opportunities um, throughout most of their life, and they benefited from it. And therefore, people say that they, if anybody's going to change China, it will be this group, because they are much more uh, internationalist and much more cosmopolitan. And of course, they were also raised with this um, patriotic education. But, you know, they, so that's, that's the reasoning, not that, this, that they're, we're looking to a specific person, but that's this generation has an experience that is conducive to a transition. Uh, any other questions? <laughs> there Sorry? Lot. There are a lot. There are a lot. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, back there. Please uh, identify yourself. Hi. Uh, my name is Henry. Um, I would like to ask a question uh, regarding the news that uh, I uh, hear from the radio uh, today. Uh, actually, Chinese government brought down uh, many uh, house uh, churches in China, and then they seem uh, really uh, worried about the growth of Christianity in China because uh, uh, China now now is seen as the biggest uh, Christian country in the world in terms of a number of people. And then uh, also the news said, in fact, uh, the number of Christians in China actually bigger than uh, the number of uh, Communist Party in China. Um, do a Christian value actually uh, put, uh, you know, like a pressure on the uh, 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 a Chinese value in terms of, uh, you know, a cultural or a political or, a, you know, a economical point of view? <laughs> well, I think there's, um, it's, it's not just Christianity that's seen as, as threatening. I think rival systems of belief are threatening to, to a party like that. And, and um, you say there are more Christians than Communist Party mem- members. I remember when, when, when the crackdown on Falun Gong began, you know, it was again asserted that there were 100 million Falun Gong believers and at that time, I think, 60 million party members. So... 
It's the idea that, that there is another uh, faith, belief, ideology, religion that, that people feel a, a, a fierce loyalty to uh, uh, is regarded um, as threatening. And there was a huge uh, kind of upsurge in interest in, in religion and, uh, after the end of the Cultural Revolution when there was a vacuum of belief. And there was the two things happened. One, you know, the prospect of material progress. You could get rich. People started you know, chasing the idea of material progress. But on the other hand, there was, you know, this vacuum of, of, of things to believe in and all kinds of things expanded to fill that gap, including Christianity. But the bit of, Christian, but the bit of Christianity the state has, has a big problem with are, as, as you say, the house churches. I mean, there have been destruction of churches, of formal churches, recently, but those bits of uh, Christianity which are under the formal control of the state, so, you know, kind of the patriotic churches, seem to be relatively untroubled. It's, it's powerful beliefs that are not under the control of the party or the state that I think are threatening. I don't think that the beliefs themselves pose a huge threat um, as such. I don't think... And, I mean, having said that... Um, uh, uh, the, the Taiping Rebellion has never <laughs> entirely forgotten, but, but I don't think we're looking at a potential Taiping Rebellion. We're just looking at people who don't owe you know, a profound loyalty or don't feel they owe a profound loyalty to, 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 the, to a, a set of communist beliefs, which in any event are not much in evidence in China. So you know, it's another bit of ambivalence, I think. I think it's a fear. It's the um, the state sees us threatening, and Falun Gong is a good example of this. And the obsession with the Dalai Lama is another. The the Communist Party is not about beliefs in the afterlife. It's not about beliefs. It's, it's um, loyalty to a figure who is not associated that. And the Taiping would be fear of this kind of prophetic kind of thing figure, and it's fear of organiza- rival organization. Yeah. It's not about what people believe. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, I think the, the, we may be moving back toward it, but the different, there's a totalitarian kind of a system that wants to actually control the inner life and the private life and the private musings or dreams of, of individuals, which is the kind of Orwellian view of, of, of a state. There's another kind of thing which China has, had moved to after the Cultural Revolution, which was worrying a lot about organized Activity, but giving a lot more freedom to private belief, and that it really didn't matter. If so, there too, it's the organization that goes along with it, not not a belief in in Christianity as a set of um, abstract ideals. Why don't you choose someone? I'll choose I'll choose someone. But first, I'll say that don't forget if you leave early or if you leave at the end, there will be a book sale. And if you wait till the end, there'll be a book signing, too. Uh, of this book. Of this book, yeah. for a good price for that. All right, there's somebody very eager at the far back there. Yeah. You have five minutes. Okay. And then, yeah. Do you want to take a couple questions? Uh, okay, thank you very much for your speech. And uh, I'm a graduate student uh, in LSE. Uh, just a uh, uh, brief question following by the... Uh, you have mentioned about the role of law. I think this is put forward by Xi Jinping recently about the uh, role of law in China. Uh, I mean, do you have, like you have mentioned, the Budapest as a graduate reform. I don't know, I mean, do you have any ideas how this could be finally implemented in China? 
because like you have mentioned about the May Force movement, the like the Tiananmen Square, all this kind of uh, social or the student movement, they mainly call for this kind of democracy, this kind of election. But uh, I mean, to me, it's more like a slogan. They don't have a kind of bring blue, I mean, blueprint for the future how this could be actually implemented. And uh, I mean, more detailed, like it's a, more like a paradoxy that uh, the priority of the government is to stabilizing this. Uh, China's this huge society, while uh, from the Western experience, we can see all this kind of, like the Glorious Revolution, the French Revolution, all this have this kind of social turmoil <laughs> occurred. So, uh, sorry, too much back, but back to the point that how could you, this kind of rule by law could be implemented in China? Thank you. Okay, well, let's take uh, another question because uh, we have to round up soon. Um, way in the back. Is that too far to get the microphone to? It's fine. You can shout. Yeah. Okay. Microphone is coming. Yeah, no, away. microphone's coming. Yeah, yeah. Please identify yourself. Oh. <laughs> is this is this a must? Well, uh, actually, I, I study fine art in Central Martin. Um, well, um, I'm very. Uh, impressed by uh, Professor Lei's um, ideas about uh, uh, the we need to take uh, take off the past and to reorganize those coins on the floor as a traditional uh, Chinese uh, cultural value um, and also uh, and I like the, the the idea the multiple dimensional view of um, those uh, uh, past value and uh, that is also what I'm doing now uh, like working on um, but um, my question is how to, how to how to make use of uh, if once we we organize this multiple dimensional view as part of uh, multiculturalism, like um, in the present world, where already dominant by the power of uh, Western cultural canons. Yeah, this. Thank you. Okay. Well, why don't we uh, answer that question? That fits right into your yeah, it, uh, research. It fits right into my research agenda, actually. So this is thank you for this question because it gives Did me an opportunity. Did you plant that question? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, so one of the things, I mean, there's, there's many different ways that this might be realized. And I can just offer you the way that I'm sort of approaching it in my own work. Um, so I think that um, by understanding Chinese political thought, which is my focus, um, as something that isn't simply reducible to Confucianism, but it is itself multidimensional, as you said, multivocal. There is no one Chinese way of approaching questions. We can actually think about um, looking at how historically certain kinds of ideas or questions have been posed and then see if we can build bridges between those kinds of questions and issues that continue to concern us in political and social theory. Um, so, for example, in my first book, um, I use the, the ideas of, a, of an early 20th century intellectual named Zhang Shijiao, who was running a very, at the time, a very well-known um, political journal called Jiayin Zhaji, the Tiger Journal. And in this journal, he thought very seriously about the question of how a society transitions to democracy in the absence of any pre-existing democratic practices or indigenous democratic sentiment. 
And I think this is an interesting question for us to pose because in, in the, the field that I work, political philosophy, um, answers to this question almost exclusively rely on the fact that some, nation, some society somewhere will have some kind of democratic um, past, something to draw upon in order to actualize democracy in the present. So, for example, Hannah Arendt is one very famous example. She says, well, we have the ancient Greeks, and I mean, even if we're not democratic now or we feel our society isn't democratic enough, we know as a society we're aware of these values. We can, we can try to bring them into practice. But this is really not an alternative for probably most societies in the world today, and particularly those that are transitioning to democracy. So Zhang Shijiao had a very interesting way of solving this question. He said, actually, if we want to transition to democracy or to any other kind of, we want to enact any other kind of social or cultural change that doesn't already, always already exist within our, our social practices, we can think about the ways in which, and this is a very Confucian idea, even though he was not a self-identified mm-hmm. Confucian. This is a very neo-Confucian idea. He said, we can think about the ways in which we as individuals affect our families, how our families affect our relations with friends and society, and then how that has a ripple-out effect um, to then constitute a kind of public sphere in which we can talk to each other as, as equals, right? So he doesn't start from the public sphere as already existing and then say, okay, how can we discuss things in the public sphere and then hope for some kind of democratic transition from there? He was starting from a much, much smaller point, right? So I'm just giving you this as one example of the way this might be done. Now, it doesn't involve, like, talking to, you know, using Confucian texts necessarily. or th- There's so much in Chinese history and Chinese political thought that is unmined. It's untapped. And I, I really do agree with my, my friend in history, Yu Shijun, when he says they're, they're, they are lying. They're like coins on the ground, right? And we need to have a thread to pull them together. Um, but thank you for your question. I feel very passionately about this issue. <laughs> you can tell. Okay, uh, rule of law? Rule of law, yes. Um, indeed, Xi Jinping does talk about rule of law, but I think it's quite important to, uh, to look at what he means by it. Um, and, you know, we talked about Confucianism. We haven't so much talked about legalism and Hanfei and those traditions in China, which um, argued that, that the law is an instrument of the ruler. It's an instrument of control. And that is the, explicitly, actually, that is the tradition that Xi Jinping is calling on when he talks about rule of law. He means rule by law. It means that there is this entity which is above the law, as I said, but which uses the law um, uh, in order to, um, uh, to control China. I think to the question of transition, I mean, first of all, you have to want to transition. And, you know, at the, the moment, there is no sign that certainly the party... Um, does want to transition. And a transition raises the rather fundamental question of who does the state belong to, which also goes back to your question about the law. Because if you assume that the state belongs to the people, then the law is an instrument uh, by which those rights are defended. The individual and collective rights of the people are defended against abuse. And that's kind of, I suppose, the tradition that's grown up in the West. That's the idea that's grown up in the West. Um, whereas if you live in a place where essentially if you go back to Qin Shi Huangdi, you know, where the state belongs to the emperor, um, then the law is used in a very different way. So that for China to have a transition, that question which remains unresolved in China, who does the state belong to, you know, has to be faced. And I'll give you, you know, to illustrate, I, I'm from Scotland last, last year, was it only last year? Last we year. had a referendum in Scotland about whether Scotland should continue to be part of the United Kingdom or be an independent country. 
there is no doubt that had that result gone the other way, and it was a relatively narrow but clear defeat for the independence argument, had, it, had the vote been won, Scotland would be transitioning towards independence. It's very hard to imagine that happening in Xinjiang or Tibet or Mongolia or any of the places where that sentiment is alive that people might wish to imagine another future. And they're not allowed to imagine another future because the state, even their bit of the state, doesn't belong to them. And that, you know, makes it very difficult to see how transitions can be executed peacefully. But my feeling is that I don't think the system can last forever. And I think that if you don't manage transitions and imagine another future, then transitions come up behind you and that's where you get chaos and difficulty. Whereas I think that you can, it's a perilous process, but that transitions can be managed if you, uh, if you look, are trying to look at ways of sharing power and really putting power in the hands of the people, putting the state in the hands of the people. It's, it, you, know, you can imagine it and you can, and you can manage it, but, but first you have to want to. And I think... Um there, there are a lot of things to be depressed about right now if you're thinking of these kinds of things. I think the way in which history can be, can save you in some ways from, from this complete distress is to realize how many things that have happened would have seemed, were not predicted and seemed utterly hard to imagine happening at the time. I mean, talking about there were successive uh, protests that really seemed to get nowhere if you were talking to somebody in South Korea in 1984, they might have said that, and there was the Gwangju massacre, and then it seemed like surely that would have exposed to people that, that something had to change. And then there were protests, and they seemed to be very, uh, you know, if the protests seemed to be futile, and they were futile until they weren't. Um, and another example, a different one of the problem with prediction would okay. be that the last person you would expect to oversee a transition would be the son of a dictator. I've talked about Chiang Kai-shek, his son who had had in part being head of secret police, that Jiang Jingguo, at a certain point, if you said this will be the person who will move to a democratic Taiwan, you might have been laughed at. But So very strange and unexpected kinds of things can happen, which is what makes life scary, but it also can give you some hope when things start to seem hopeless. Okay, yeah, so history is therapy. <laughs> I like that. Um, well, I, we have lots more questions. Unfortunately, we've actually gone over time, so please uh, join me in thanking Jeff Lee and Isabel for coming and giving us this great talk. <laughs>